would, we'd take in certain vistas together. So the very first vista that we kind of really took in together was this majestic view of our sovereign God. Majestic there is more than just a flowery word. Because truly this letter has lifted our eyes to see the majesty of our sovereign and triune God who is accomplishing all things and is superintending their means as well as their ends all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of His own will and ultimately for the purpose of the praise of His own glory and grace. And in Ephesians 1, 3-14, that was really the first sort of vista that we took in. We stopped and we, we spent a great deal of time in that passage really looking at the majesty of this sovereign God who is accomplishing salvation from beginning to end completely and totally on His own for the praise of His glory and His grace. A work that is coming to us from the Father in the Son and by the Holy Spirit. Then we jumped back in, as it were, and we journeyed then into the prayer that Paul prays, that first prayer that he prays for the Ephesians. And we he prays, and, and we also ought to pray for one another. Again, not that our circumstances would be changed, but that the eyes of our hearts would be unveiled, that we might have a revelation, as Paul says, that, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know the hope to which we are called. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? That there was a certain knowledge that Paul was praying that we would come to know about who God is, about what He has done for us in Christ, and that who He is and what He's done for us in Christ would reveal for us an identity, an identity that once we understood who we truly are in Christ, that all the rest of our lives could flow from that place. And then, so that we might not think too highly of ourselves, after Paul had lifted our eyes to see the majesty of God, had prayed so earnestly that the, the eyes of our heart might be enlightened so that we might see what he was up to and what that meant about who we were truly in him. He brought our eyes back down low to see what our estate was apart from Christ. Depravity in its truest sense. But you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I mean, as if we were brought to the edge of the graveside like Ebenezer in Dickens' tale to see our own name written on the tombstone that had been planted there. Not, not mostly dead. Completely and totally dead. And not only dead, but bound. And not only bound but by our very nature, 
destined for wrath. These are different vistas that we took in. And, and then again, as our eyes are brought down low, immediately He brings them back up to see that this sovereign God that we talked about in chapter 1, who is working all things together according to the counsel of His own will, according to the of His glory and grace, had in His grace bestowed bountiful riches of mercy upon us and had raised us up from that lowly estate to a place of high estate seated with Christ in the heavenly places, saved by grace alone and not by works, lest any man should boast. Why? To the point that he's going to get to, in just a little over a chapter, so that we might walk in, walk in the good works that He planned beforehand that we should walk in them. And then He prays again. Prays that power might come from the Spirit, enabling us to walk, continue to walk in that way. And then, after praying for us, He beseeches us then in chapter 4 and says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. A call that has come from such a great God and put off animosity and division. Division that's already been broken down, chapter 2, in the body of Christ in His death. He's united us together. Walk in that unity. Contend for that unity in the bond of peace. And be equipped by one another. Not only receiving a measure of the gift of God by His Spirit, but also being equipped and built up and matured by one another through the ministry of the Word, which is the speaking of the truth to one another. That's how Paul says we're to be built up in every way into Christ, who is the head to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Don't walk according to the ways of the Gentiles any longer, he says. Again, this sort of rising and falling action, rising and falling action, lifting our eyes to see God, seeing the, the indicatives, the things, uh, what God has done for us in Christ, and then, and then bringing these imperatives, these things that, that call us into action, not so that we might earn but as chapter 5 says in verses 1 and 2, that in doing them we might be imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see now how in each of these places we've stopped and we've dwelled in these different spots and we've taken in these vistas and we've been called to different things together? And yet, even in two years, let me tell you, we have not studied everything that we might, nor plumbed the depths of this majestic epistle. So may God, by His Spirit, on this Pentecost Sunday, whet our appetites for more, more of Him, more of what we have learned here in these pages. 
May we not be content to simply have taken it in in one glance and walked away, but may we revisit these truths often and take in the beauty and the majesty and the glory of all that they contain over and over and over again. May we, may we savor. May we savor these things together. That's the polite way of putting it. May we chew the cud of these things. Eating and digesting and bringing up and eating and digesting again until we have sucked out every last bit of truth that God has for us here. You'll never come to the end of it. For the things that we have studied here truly are the core of the gospel. And they are not the milk, but the meat. The meat that we must return to again and again and again for our sustenance day in and day out. May we pray that the prayer of Paul for the Ephesians might be answered in us. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that we might know the greatness of his power that is working toward us who believe. Amen? Amen. So as we look then at the closing of this letter, it would be easy, even as it may have been easy at the beginning to skip over the intro that Paul gave. It, it may be easy just to come to the end and be like, oh, here's, here's the closing, guys. The letter's over. All, all the good stuff is done. And he's just kind of wrapping it up, you know. Sincerely, Paul. But there's great comfort and truth even here. Great purpose in the words that Paul writes here in the closing of his letter. He says in verse 21, now I want you to remember what he said in verse 20. He's an ambassador in chains. This is not figurative speech. This is not just some Paul trying to use flowery words that sound good and, and draw out empathy or, or anything like this. This is the truth of the matter. Paul is in prison. He's in prison. And we know from other places, and we're going to go and look at one of those places here in just a moment, we know that Paul knows he's not getting out. He knows that the end is near. It is nigh. <laughs> it is nigh unto the end, I say. And, and, and here, I want you to understand that even in that moment, in the midst of that trial and that circumstance, and, and don't miss that it was a trial for him. It, He's, he's not just using, um, he, he's not just being polite and asking them to pray for him because he thinks that, that he should ask them to do that because that's what we do. Oh, and by the way, you know, pray for me, pray for me, brother, pray for me. Paul is in earnest here begging them to pray for him. 
Because this trial is, is hard, and it would be easy for Paul to take his eyes off of the great prize, which is the continued proclamation of the gospel, and to set his eyes on his circumstance, and to woe his way through the end of his life. He is an earnest praying for them, that pray, asking them to pray for him, that, that he may continue to open his mouth boldly, not to whine and complain and bemoan, but rather to proclaim the gospel that he has been extolling to them over these last six chapters. But see his frame of mind. So that you also may know how I am. And what I am doing. I mean, I'm just, I'm just being honest here. I mean, I imagine myself in this place, and I think the words that are more likely to come out of my mouth are like, hey guys, uh, things here are getting real, and uh, I got no more time to deal with y'all, so uh, good luck. You know, I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm done. I, I need to start focusing on, on what's going on in, in my own life right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been fun. I mean, what, what would you say? Where would you be? Where is Paul? And why is Paul in this place? Paul understands that in Christ he has obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He understands that he is among the first to hope in Christ so that it might be to the praise of Christ's glory. And he understands that in Christ he is also, when he heard the word of truth, the gospel of his salvation, and believed in him, that he was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of his inheritance until he acquires possession of it to the praise of his glory, so that he might say for me to live as Christ, but to die as gain. So as long as I'm here, Paul would say elsewhere, it's for your benefit. And so as long as I'm here, he says, I'm going to continue to live for your benefit. And so he wants them to know how he's doing. He wants them to know what he's doing. And so he's sent Tychicus. Did you ever heard of this guy before? This dude does not get the credit he deserves. For one, what just an absolute gangster of a name. I don't know how else to say that, all right? Like, that's just not a name anyone has anymore. Uh, this dude is from Asia. He's probably from Asia Minor, from Turkey. And as we begin to piece things together from here in Ephesians, 
from Acts 20, verse 4, from Colossians, from Philemon, from 2 Timothy and Titus. Yes, this guy, who none of y'all heard of before, was mentioned in all of those places. I thought you were reading your Bible. I'm just playing with you. It seems that towards the end of his life that this was one of Paul's most trusted men. One of his most trusted men. And he was the carrier of the letter of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. He was the carrier of the letter to the Colossians. And he was the one who Paul entrusted to carry the most sensitive letter to Philemon. Together with Onesimus. He's mentioned in all these places And here, he calls him a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. Now, it's it's difficult to kind of parse this out and understand. And most theologians will say, you know what, it actually can take on double meaning. That in one sense, Paul is extolling this man as being a faithful minister unto himself. that, That he has actually ministered unto Paul himself. But also, in another sense, he is extolling him as a minister to the Ephesians. And what we find in 2 Timothy is that Paul is actually sending Tychicus to replace Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus as he calls Timothy to himself at the end of his life, asking Timothy to bring to him Mark, which is an incredible little, just brief little thing there. Mark and Paul have this falling out Paul is beyond just done with Mark. Barnabas, it causes a rift with Paul and Barnabas, and Mark goes off with Barnabas. Paul takes Silas, and and they kind of split their ways. We see even there the sovereign hand of God as the missionary endeavor is then exponentially multiplied through that. Praise God that he works even through our sin and our error and our Faults, truly as they are. And then we see at the end of his life, Paul telling Timothy, bring Mark. He says, I have great need for him. What a beautiful picture of true Christian forgiveness and reconciliation. I can't even imagine. We know, we, we believe that Mark was a very young man. Very, very young man. And to hear that call from this apostle so late in his life at the end and saying, I have great need of this brother. What restoration is that? As I thought about that, I was reminded that no matter no matter what a brother or sister may have done to me that may cause for resistance or resentment in my heart, that I need to remember what I believe Paul was remembering in that moment. That nothing that anyone has ever done to me 
is greater than my sin against Christ. And as God in Christ has forgiven me, I, like the unloving servant, unlike him, really, am called to forgive. As Jesus said in that parable, those who have been forgiven much love much. And in love, we forgive. We don't allow that resistance and that resentment to give way to the kind of bitterness that breeds rebellion in our hearts towards each other. That is not contending for unity in the bond of peace. And we must remember, no matter what anyone has done to us, that their sin against us is not greater than our sin against God. We see here Paul's great care for the church. What he calls in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's, that's the newer translations, these anxiety. I don't know that that's the most helpful word uh, because we are a society filled with great anxiety so much that we... We medicate our anxiety and really the word that, that was more translated before is care of my great care, concern for the church. We see that concern here. Sending Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister, one of his most trusted men to take over the shepherding of this church. And we see here as he says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And, and, and again, one of the words here translated in the older uh, translations is he may comfort your hearts. And I love that word comfort because the word comfort comes from the Latin cum forte, forte meaning with force or with strength brings much meaning to when Jesus says that I am sending the comforter, right? And often we get this idea of like the thing you take off your bed and wrap yourself up in on one day of the year in South Texas when it's actually needed, right? And, and there's, there's comfort there. That's, that's not the kind of comfort that we're talking about. We are talking about God the Holy Spirit who comes cum forte with power, with force, with strength in our lives, to fill us in every way. And here he says that he sent this brother to come with strength for their hearts, to comfort their hearts. Why comfort? Because Paul's going to die. Paul is going to die. And this brother comes to tell what's happening and to bring comfort not only that, but because he's coming now to help shepherd this flock, we know that the, one of the ways that he is going to comfort them is by unpacking for them all these things that Paul has written to them. Even as we have done spending time going over them and digging into them, we didn't just take time to read six chapters of a letter and say, great guys, that was good. Did you get all that? Let's move on. 
But as they begin to pour over this letter that God by the Spirit expired, breathed out for Paul to write, as they begin to pour over it, Tychicus is able to begin to expound and exposit on the things that Paul has written here as a comfort for their hearts. We see Paul's deep and abiding, unselfish, sincere, and intimate concern for the church. Truly, that is the heart of an under-shepherd. Someone who has been tasked to shepherd the flock that Christ has given to him. And it's that kind of deep and abiding and selfish, sincere and intimate concern that we should want to see in those who lead. We see this same concern in Acts 20. And you can turn there if you'd like. I asked you guys to read this a couple weeks ago and I don't know who did and that's between you and the Lord. But we're going to read it here together, verses 17 through 38, because I want you to see how deep and how sincere was this love and care that Paul had for the church and for all the churches truly. But this unique picture we see of his care for the church here in Ephesus. And in verse 17 of Acts 20, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert." remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up 
and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You, you, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on a part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. What a beautiful picture we see here of Paul's care and concern for the church. And the care and concern that the church had for him. The intimacy that was shared there. One thing is for sure. Paul, even as the apostle that he was, even tasked as he was with the taking of the gospel to the Gentiles and preaching the mystery of this breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and the uniting of the two men into one in Christ, we see even here that Paul was not a lone wolf. In all the descriptions that we see of Paul writing and greeting different brothers in the different churches, even as he's sending Tychicus here to Ephesus and calling for Timothy and for Mark and, 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 and greeting other brothers and sending them to different places, Paul was not a lone wolf. Even in his travels, everywhere that he went, when he landed where he was, and even as he journeyed, he was integrated in and surrounded by this covenant community, this gospel-formed family. And so Paul writes, not to strangers, though we see here a lack of the familiar greetings that we see in the other places and it shows us that this church had exponentially grown to such a place that this letter was going to need to be cycled through the different churches that were in the area. Yet even here we see that Paul was not writing to strangers. He was writing to those whom he truly in the faith considered his brothers and sisters in Christ. His family. And so Paul begins and ends his letter with grace and peace. Grace and peace. He says here, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul begins and ends his letter with grace and peace. And what are these, church? These are the products of the gospel. Grace and peace are the products of the gospel, spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, only in Christ. And here, Paul says, peace be. May it exist. May it remain. Grace 
be, may it exist, may it remain. And he knows that they will. That grace and peace will remain as long as Christ is Lord. For it is in Christ and only in Christ that grace, true grace, and peace, true peace, exist. And he says, with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. As Calvin translated, uncorruptly. That they would love without corruption. And so there's a call to us, even as we close this letter, even as we look at the end, at this at this final sort of greeting from Paul, this this salutation, this closing, and and he says to all who love Christ without corruption. We can't even close the letter without an inward assessment of our own hearts. Asking From where does my love of Christ come? From where does my love of Christ come? Do I love him? For the blessings? Have I convinced myself that I love Him when truly what I want are just the things that He gives? That I've heard that He gives? From where... Does my love of Christ come? Or do I love Him because the eyes of my heart have been enlightened to see that He loved me? You see, the church today is filled with many people who love the things that they believe that Jesus might give to them. The church today is filled with people who love the sense of community that they experience when they're around people who love Jesus. but they themselves do not actually love Jesus. Their love of Him that they proclaim is really a corrupted love. And the grace and the peace that they experience is a corrupted grace and peace in the sense that it is only a temporary benefit that they experience and not an eternal rest 
for their souls. And so even in the closing of this letter, we cannot, we cannot fold over the page without taking a look at our own hearts and asking a very hard question. From where does my love of Christ come? Do I love the gift more than the giver? Or is my heart enthralled with Him? Remember, we must not come to Christ for His benefits. We must come to Christ for Christ. And here's the joyous good news. In Him is every spiritual blessing to those who believe, to those who are called, to those who by faith have received this gift of grace. Church, it's not enough to be around Jesus. It's not enough to be around Jesus' people. It's not enough to be around Jesus' stuff. All that will do is actually inoculate us from understanding our true need of Him. We must be in Him. We must be united to Him. And that is only by grace through faith alone. So what have we seen? We've seen a sovereign God accomplishing a particular redemption for those chosen in love ahead of time apart from any good work as a gift of grace, received by a gift of faith, apprehended by a gift of faith, joined together with God's family, united by, with, and in Christ, gifted for the building up of the body, equipped by the Spirit for every good work and the laying aside of the lusts of the flesh, protected by the provision of Christ's salvation, of Christ's Righteousness of Christ's truth, of Christ's peace, of Christ's spirit and faith invited to join in prayer and ongoing ministry of the word and the faith once for all handed down. Yes, Paul, by the spirit, has given what he has intended, grace and peace. He has served us, Christ Jesus Himself, Savior and Lord, King and God. And so now, may we sincerely, because we have been made known of His love for us, with love uncorruptible, 
May we each together walk in grace and in peace. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, grace and peace are not things that we can manufacture. And so now in prayer we come to humbly and yet boldly approach the throne of grace for help in our time of need. May we now throw ourselves at your mercy and receive from you through the means which you have provided grace. And may we go in peace. We pray all of these things in the name of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit from whom all these things come. May it be so. May it be now. May it be real. In Jesus' name, amen.